Welcome to City Arts and Lectures, a season of talks and onstage conversations with some of the most celebrated writers, artists, and thinkers of our day, recorded before an audience at the Sydney Goldstein Theater in San Francisco. This week, Ben Lerner and Maggie Nelson, two of the foremost writers working at the intersection of poetry, nonfiction, and memoir. On November 21, 2019, Ben Lerner and Maggie Nelson came to the Sydney Goldstein Theater in San Francisco to talk about Ben Lerner's book, The Topeka School, a semi-autobiographical work that examines language, masculinity, and today's political and cultural crises. Join me now for a conversation with Ben Lerner and Maggie Nelson. No, thank you for coming and thank you for doing this. And Maggie was an indispensable reader of this book and manuscript, so all of its flaws are her responsibility. Exactly, yeah. Every, every yeah. single one. Um, well, I thought that, you know, just to kind of cut very quickly to get into the weeds, instead of starting with like a, you know, what made you become a writer kind of question. I would go very just deep in the weeds and talk, ask you some things that have been on my mind ever since I started reading this book in earnest, which have to do with therapy and psychoanalysis, because I don't really think that in things I've read about the book, um, I haven't really, I, haven't, I mean, I've read a little bit about it, but, you know, but analysis and therapy are just, I mean, especially, you know, psychoanalytic theory are longstanding interests of mine, and I think that... There's so much in this book um, that I want to ask you about in that realm. So I guess I would just start by saying that, you know, I came up in school, and maybe you did too, I don't know. I want to hear more about it because a lot of this book, as those of you who have read it, has know, um, have to do with having two therapists as parents and who work at a institute. Um, and but, but more than that, thematically, to me, a lot of the book um, uses what I recognize, and I'm curious to know if you recognize them or are wielding them explicitly as such, as, as kind of tropes of, from psychoanalysis, whether it's return of the repressed or um, the kind of uh, notions of interpretation and transference, like a lot of things that are, that when I came of age, and maybe you too, I don't know, psychoanalytic theory was still very in vogue as something that was taught, especially in literary realms. And I have noticed now as a teacher, when I try and teach it, my students often tell me, I mean, rightly, they guffaw at castration complex and Oedipal triangulation and things that, that maybe deserve to be guffawed at in certain ways. But there's a, you know, there's been a kind of displacement of a lot of that um, conceptualization of interaction and mind by neurological, medical, behavioral approaches via um, SSRIs and, and cognitive behavioral therapy, just different things. Your book has so many of the different things in them, but I'm just curious, because I've never asked you before, how much any of that, I mean, I guess therapy, but psychoanalysis in particular was of interest to you in writing the book and what you see as the relation, of which there are many, but what the relation might be between some of those tropes and yeah. structuring the book, you know? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. I said, we're going to start My, my aunt and uncle it, who yeah. are here are both therapists yeah. who know a lot more. You know, they actually know the theory, so I have to be careful not yeah, to... Yeah, we're going to literary gloss yeah. on I, I mean, theory. I, the, psycho, yeah. 
I mean, the parents in the book, like my parents, aren't analysts. They're family right. systems therapists, right. which is, of course, informed like kind of any therapeutic practice I can think of by psychoanalysis and its insights. But I think for me, the, you know, the, this is a book that's largely about prehistory. Like mm -hmm. it wants to be a prequel right. to the other two novels. It wants to kind of be the unconscious of the other two novels. And mm -hmm. it's a book about prehistory in the sense that it's about the way patterns recur across generations and might be illuminated or broken or whatever. And I definitely kind of grew up in a household where like if people were visiting from out of town, people would drink some wine and then draw genograms. That was like kind of like a, you know, like a, a routine practice. So I think when I started writing fiction kind of without meaning to necessarily, but the, the, the ways that a certain kind of therapy is attuned to uh, the repetitions and silences in a family system also mm -hmm. is a very novelistic practice mm -hmm. to think about, especially a novel that has multiple centers and moves across generations. So I think there is a way in which the family systems theory that I kind of imbibed, not in a rigorous mm -hmm. way, but in a kind of ambient way, mm -hmm. has really shaped my thinking about fiction. Mm -hmm. I think that, that um, you know, what we all learned when we were studying psychoanalysis in some capacity in like English courses, right, was that, was that it, it just helps remind us that what a character says is always, the character always means more and less than he means to express, a writer always means more and less than he means to write, and that writing is this weird calibration of the patterns you will in order mm -hmm. to produce the architecture of an aesthetic object and mm -hmm. these patterns you discover in writing, which are mm -hmm. your own complicated, driven behaviors that suddenly come, become visible in the act of composition. You know? yeah. but, I, but I think that, that, that what made this book writable for me was this idea that it would both be about um, psychologists or being the son of psychologists. It would be about family prehistory, but it would also be a prequel to the other two books and mm -hmm. almost kind of become the unconscious of the other two novels in the trilogy. That's super interesting. I mean, I have two questions. One, can you, would you mind terribly saying a couple, a few couple things about what family systems therapy works like? Well, in the most, in the most basic way of kind of like Family systems therapy, as I understood it, would mean that you would say track where there was a cutoff in a previous generation and look for ways that that cutoff, for example, might influence contemporary relationships. And you would kind of map out the family as a system and think about where there might be triangles or the repetition of certain behavior and try to kind of demystify it so you wouldn't be doomed to repeat it. I mean, this book also has a lot about kind of the mother character Jane's experience being a certain kind of therapist at an institution that was dominated by an old guard of more traditional mm -hmm. analysts in mm -hmm. which kind of like resisting their authority always meant you would be expressing your penis envy. Right. You know, and you had to be kind of an analysis with your boss right. or you were encouraged to be an analysis with your boss, which means like you'd have like an outburst in a meeting, like you, not an outburst, they would say it was an outburst. You would say something in a meeting about how like, why do, why do women get paid less for the right. same job classification? And then like an hour later, you had to kind of talk about your outburst and how right. it related to your phallic strivings. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or whatever. So, so it is. It, it is in part about the kind of rivalry of different theoretical orientations. Of course, yeah. psychoanalysis has changed a lot, but yeah. there's, there's also that. And there also, for me, I should say, like in the book, 
and I don't pretend to any special knowledge or authority about these discourses or anything like that, but the other really interesting thing about growing up in Topeka and about the Menninger Foundation is that it, it Carl Menninger, which is you know, very fictionalized in the book, but Carl Menninger had been really effective at recruiting uh, a lot of analysts who had fled by whatever circuitous, circuitous route, the Holocaust, and so there were these European analysts who found themselves in Topeka, Kansas, and became kind of like the elder generation and the bearers of historical memory and trauma for people who were in my parents' generation mm -hmm. who had come from the coasts to do their postdocs mm -hmm. or whatever and stayed. Mm -hmm. So there's also kind of psychoanalysis is what was often called the Jewish science, mm -hmm. you know, and as a kind of, as a kind of interpretive practice and bearer of historical memory that couldn't be separated from the surpassing disasters of that history. So the book yeah. kind of tries to gather all of that yeah. uh, in a certain way. I mean, what you said about, I mean, there are multiple layers upon which that works, right? So one of them, like you're saying, is when you're talking about the writing a prehistory, there's a prehistory of both psychoanalysis, but also of just uh, American immigration history at mid-century, right, that you've got in there. But then, and then there's, but I'm curious just for a minute, I want to maybe go back to that later, but for the moment, what you just said about this book being the unconscious of the other two books, but you're also kind of talking about unconscious and prehistory as um, uh, synonymous in some way or something. So A, I wonder if you might say something about that, and B, um, what do you make of the fact that the unconscious would be like the story of your or fictionalized Adam's parents, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think in a way it's like, when I started writing fiction for reasons I don't fully pretend to understand, parents and parental mortality mm -hmm. and questions of intergenerational transmission immediately kind of asserted themselves, mm -hmm. um, often in kind of like funny or tragic comic forms, like in the first novel I wrote, Adam Gordon tells this lie about his mother being dead to kind of get the sympathy of an attractive stranger on the one hand, but on the other hand, he's also kind of trying to say the thing he's most afraid about mm -hmm. at this kind of young age when he's abroad and in this mm -hmm. moment of vertiginous self-invention mm -hmm. or whatever. So like, to a certain degree, you know, I think, and I think this had to do with my parents' work, I think this had to do with the nature of fiction, which is always to a certain degree about the genealogy of the voice that's writing it. Mm -hmm. I think when I had kind of written these two novels and then kind of became a parent, I got interested in remembering Adam Gordon's childhood, but I didn't have access to like the adolescent version of me, which is largely like a black box to me. Like I can't really <laughs> get back inside of what I was like as a teenager, but I suddenly had this like empathic, however, you know, refracted or inaccurate ability to imagine my childhood from my parents' perspective. Mm -hmm. So that it was a way of both kind of thinking about, thinking about myself from the impossible vantage of my parents, but also kind of thinking about the present of composition when I'm like also a parent who has to figure out what I'm gonna transmit or try not to transmit to the next generation. So I just mean to say that you know, when I wrote Leaving the Atocha Station and Adam Gordon blurts out this lie about his mom or he has this distrust of language or he's desperate to pass in a certain way as a certain kind of person or in the second book when again, like it's about kind of this narrator may or may not, maybe he'll just be a sperm donor, maybe he'll be a father with someone who wants to have a child, his best friend who wants to have a child, whose own mom is dying. Like there were all these questions mm -hmm. of 
the intergenerational mm -hmm. that were showing up in the novels, but I hadn't kind of gone directly mm -hmm. at mm -hmm. um, some of the emotional sources of that concern mm -hmm. that were harder to handle. So I, I just mean that the, it's a, it, it, I, I wanted to write a book that would give a different resonance and valence mm -hmm. to some of the often kind of like comic or picaresque elements of those mm -hmm. other novels, mm -hmm. but that that involved thinking through a lot of my like childhood formation mm -hmm. and malformation or, you know, whatever. But here's the thing. I mean, I know, we both teach and I've written, I'm sure my family here can, you know, attest to the, the woes and of that, but that Here's the thing, when most people go, my students or myself, most people go to the jugular or the non, the jugular adjacent mode of writing about family, they usually go to, you know, petty grievances or, you know, it, it kind of shows how grown up you've become and how, and the fact that I'm just, you know, very amazed by that you seem to have skipped over that entire problem and just gone straight to, com you know, totally empathetic, credible monologues from the point of view of your parents. Well, the parents and are pretty screwed up in a way in the book. I mean, they're great parents, and it's like an homage to these fictionalized versions of my parents, but they also, like, they commit, they commit this horrible parent sin of Which thinking one? that their kids will know better. Right. They, they, yeah. they think that their kids... Right. Their kids are sensitive. Well, they don't have kids, sorry. In my real life, I have a brother who the book is dedicated to, but who is left out in part because he demanded to be left out. <laughs> and, and, and in part because I couldn't figure out how to handle it formally. But, but, but the parents in the book, Adam Gordon's parents, believe that because he's, although he's a handful, he's expressive of vulnerability. He's, he fights in a way that always produces more language. So they have language, they can process. He doesn't withdraw, which is what they're really afraid mm -hmm. of as therapists, because as long as there's like mm -hmm. language and conversation, there's processing. But they think he'll Were they right? Uh, they weren't no, right? No, no, they weren't right. They, my, I mean, you mean my, my parents, right? I mean, it's basically but, the yeah. same error. No, right, they weren't yeah. right. That, 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 the, you, that you can't, what the book says is that, um, I think there's somewhere in the book I say something about like he did know better, but knowing is a weak state. You know, knowing knowing is a weak state compared to his desire to pass as a real man in the dominant libidinal economy right. or whatever. So the parents are distracted and but are. But that's the short game, right? I mean, the long game is the Adam that's narrating the book from now. Yeah, I mean, he's learned <laughs> a lot from his. I mean, I think right. I think his his parents. I mean, a lot of the Topeka school is about his encounter with all these like weaponized forms of eloquence through debate or, or through kind of freestyle. And he wants to find some poetry in that, but it also seems proleptic of the bankruptcy of political speech and the endless game of white kids appropriating spectacularized images of African-American violence or whatever. So it's totally busted. But, <laughs> but there is also this sense that he has been given models of listening mm -hmm. and of communicative exchange that can be counter mm -hmm. to that. And so the Topeka School is both about like Adam's schooling in these different contexts, but also about what the older Adam feels like he has to mm -hmm. unlearn. I mean, I think of it really as a kind of homage to the parents, but I think an homage mm -hmm. to the parents requires de-idealization mm -hmm. and that they don't, they don't come across in the book as, as flawless. Right. I mean, I wonder, I kind of wanted to go back to something that you said about the family systems, but about um, its relationship to writing 
novels where you talked about uh, learning by laying things out, where things overlapped, um, like recognizing patterns, you know. And I think that I'm just curious in your writing process, um, I mean, one idea that I think Adam Phillips, has, who's a British psychologist, um, has talked about, about psychoanalysis and then about Freud or about Oedipus in particular, has been this idea of like thinking of analysis as a detective story, you know, in Oedipus's case, it's a, it's a crime story, whereas the journey is to discover that you're the criminal, you know. So there's a kind of sense of dread in and around self-knowledge um, as it's being sought. But there's also, um, uh, obviously, there needs to be kind of a sense of surprise and not knowing what even may later seem predetermined. But this is, so this is very different when you're thinking about constructing a novel because you have to do two things. I would imagine one would be you have to be becoming very aware of all the patterns that you're putting into play and your writing is, seems very aware of that, especially by activities of refrain of different lines or different concepts or different symbols or whatnot. But then on the other hand, clearly you probably didn't know when you started writing this what those refrains were all going to be. I wonder what, what, what surprised you to find as you plotted it, you know? Not plotted it, as you, yeah, pl as you yeah, pl no, plotted I along, mean, I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, the, this book has a weird history because like first I wrote an essay about high school debate in Topeka in 2011 and I thought well that would be like an interesting roadmap for a novel but then I thought I would write it in the first person and so I'd have to write in the a first person like teenage ad, like avatar of myself and I figured like I didn't know how to do that like I could do it as a comic novel if I tried to represent my adolescent speech but it couldn't hold any of the emotional material that I wanted so then that stalled out and I wasn't going to write the book and then I found myself kind of writing I mean, I think I sent you very early stuff. I'm like, writing things in a, ver a fictionalized version of my mother's voice. So kind of mm -hmm. getting interested in writing in that voice. And she's been so influential to me in all kinds of ways. Also, as kind of the first writer I knew, mm -hmm. you know. And it kind of worked and it kind of didn't. But then when I, again, then I had, I had, a, I had children. And there's that weird, like, bonsai effect when you have a child where like on the one hand you're like the grown-up suddenly and and what you realize or what I realized anyway is that there are no grown-ups in fact like you haven't arrived at any kind of like mature tranquility or whatever you just like have to pretend that's what it means to be a grown-up is to pretend that there's a thing called a grown-up and then but then at the same time you're looking down like I think about it as a bonsai literally because of like the the, mm -hmm. the relay of the gazes and then you're like looking down at this kid who's like looking up at you and you have this return with great vividness to your memories as a child. Mm -hmm. So you're like both for the first time the adult who knows the secret of adulthood, which is that there are no adults, and you're also like the child again, having the intense experiences of looking up at the adult, not, if you're lucky, not yet knowing the secret that there are no adults, right? <laughs> so that it's a kind of like, um, you're, you're occupying kind of two vantages at once. And for me, the book was about that to a certain degree that there's at, at different stages. There's like the older Adam who's writing the book and the political disaster of our present with these two young kids remembering the younger Adam and often remembering it from the perspective of the parents. And then, and then that, that sense of a correspondence of having like two points mm -hmm. in time is what made the book writable mm -hmm. for me mm -hmm. and to a certain degree. But then it's, yeah, it's about discovering patterns like 
Like I used my dad's real PhD dissertation, which was this weird speech shadowing phenomenon that mm -hmm. he never really did anything mm -hmm. with, but was kind of amazing where he discovered that people's like would start speaking drivel without knowing they were speaking drivel if they were like fed a recording of themselves at a certain speed. And I thought, oh, that was really like high school debate as I experienced mm -hmm. it. And, and, and then I started thinking about these like intergenerational points of linguistic collapse and the novel kind of grew around the motif of these linguistic extremes. Mm -hmm. but, but as I was like doing that work, I was driven to write all kinds of things that mm -hmm. I wasn't deciding to write consciously, like mm -hmm. in my mom's voice about her messed up father, or then I would remember just kind of in a passage of writing a little ritual of poetry recitation that mm -hmm. I fictionalized, but that was from my mom and I mm -hmm. reciting this nonsense mm -hmm. poem, The Purple mm -hmm. Cow. So I just mean, like there's a certain like a correspondent, like a temporal correspondence, a few motifs of these linguistic extremes, mm -hmm. and then having to risk what bubbles up and writing around mm -hmm. those points, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of stuff, like I look at the book now, and um, you know, like there's all this stuff in the book about how like vigilant the parents are about babysitters. Mm -hmm. My parents were like famously not vigilant about babysitters. <laughs> we like had a run of like criminally incompetent <laughs> babysitters. And I'm like, oh, like I guess I have corrected for the babysitter problem. Like what are babysitters doing in this meeting? And then I have this like call my mom up and like, you like these horrible babysitters. Like what was going on with you guys? And like we talk so I just mean to say that there there is also all this, you know want you yeah you know you know what you're doing and you don't know what you're doing mm -hmm. and that's also thematic mm -hmm. in the book you know mm -hmm. like with Jane's kind of partial mm -hmm. memory and somewhat recovered memory mm -hmm. of an experience with her father and the kind of that texture of a memory coming mm -hmm. back to consciousness that she saw mm -hmm. structuring her behavior this is a long way of yeah, saying yeah. I don't I don't know yeah no I get it <laughs> I mean I well what's cool about the not knowing though is that I think in the book you dramatize something which I think is very cool which is that what I'm describing about seeing these patterns very clearly, um, and which in a sense is also kind of, um, you know, uh, we're also watching in these monologues, particularly in the mother and Jane's monologues, you know, her interpret experience and meaning making and kind of watching you as a novelist making meaning, but you're also watching the characters kind of say, wow, you know, this time was twin to that time and look at this thing and I used that word here and I was the same word I use here and kind of tracking this, again, you know, kind of more psychoanalytical um, notion of how speech elicits pattern that can also then jog, you know, repressed memory in certain ways. But what's so cool is that the, the, the mother is also surprised in that we see her making meaning around maybe, uh, for those of you who have not read the book, you know, in particular, I mean, that her husband is having an affair with this woman, Seema, at a certain point, and we see her doing a lot of meaning-making around her relationship with Seema and why it's falling apart, but the one thing that she never puts into the equation is, oh, maybe she's sleeping with my husband, <laughs> you know? She doesn't know, but she's becoming... You know, but she's using all of her analytical chops to kind of, um, to, I mean, it's kind of the definition of being gaslit in the sense that, like, she's in, her, all of her interpretive faculties are, you know, running at high throttle, but she can't see what's actually being um, kept from her as a betrayal, um, which is, I think, I, I guess to me, it just, the fact that we then become surprised in the novel by certain elements I think is very interesting because it shows us that as we meaning make, as we read along, we too are not fully in control of our lives because we're not the only actors or tellers. Well, and you also know? just that, 
I mean that even the more benevolent characters in the book use language to obscure as yeah. much as they used to clarify. I mean, like in the in the relationship that Jonathan has with Seema, he talks about like that since they're both therapists and they're both at the foundation and they have this kind of like meta vocabulary for what's increasing the intensity between them, like they understand it as the displaced this and the transference of that or whatever, right. that they think that that meta vocabulary protects them right. from transgression, but in fact kind of like feeds the fire because yeah. they like have an yeah. intense conversation at breakfast and then they process it over lunch and like processing can right. produce processing or whatever, right. right? So like, I mean, I think, yeah, the right. book, the book is, I mean, the book swings, I think, between these different linguistic practices that sometimes are revelatory and mm -hmm. are often very obfuscating. Yeah. And that and that the therapists in this book, I mean, this isn't like an, an yeah, yeah. a position on therapy generally. Yeah. Sometimes you sometimes use their expertise to create the possibility of really authentic exchange, and sometimes mm -hmm. use it to blind themselves or others mm -hmm. to what they're actually doing. Yeah. I mean, that kind of brings us to what I, the kind of second basket of questions that I have, which is about what you're doing with forms of speech in the novel. And I think what you just described is a really good um, uh, description of how, you know, you're not making an argument about what speech is or does. You're, you're showing us what language and, and speech does and, you know, what it's capable of in all these different forms. And as you say, sometimes it's to obfuscate, sometimes it's to connect, sometimes it's to form discoveries, sometimes it's to lie. Um, some, but I think, uh, you know, in 1004, uh, Ben's previous novel, he has this line which has been really of interest to me, which in that novel is more speaking, I think, at this moment to like the forms of connectivity wrought by capitalism, but where you talk about how the bad form of something, in the case of 1004, he's talking about, I guess, like the connectivity of capitalism and the way products come from all over the world. And, you know, likewise, you can think of the internet and kind of how did the internet get so bad, you know, but how does a bad form of something um, might also serve as what he calls in 1004 a negative figure of its real possibility. So the thing has this real possibility and then it ha sometimes it comes in these negative figures, but it's not like, I mean, what I respect so much about the work that you're doing and, you know, through these fictions is not to say like, oh, how do we dust off speech and take the bad parts off of it and make it shine as real communication? It's like, it's, it's all these things, you know, at, at, at once and, and even within one conversation, like the way we use speech together here and the way we do questions later and the way we talk to people in the lobby, you know, many forms of speech, some of which are real, some of which are obfuscating, may all be operative yeah. at one time, you know, which I think is what, to me, is kind of the systems theory of speech in the novel, you know? Yeah, like I got interested, I mean, like there's a version of this novel that could be written where like the spread in high school yeah. debate or whatever is just an image of the bankruptcy of yeah. contemporary speech. But for me, the challenge was to find the glimmer of like poetic possibility yeah. in, in these linguistic extremes. So like this, this, I don't know if you guys have seen fast high school debate, but it's really amazing. You should look at some YouTube yeah, maybe clips Maybe tell people of it. a little bit yeah, about the spread so in case you I don't, don't I haven't been able to figure out when and where it started exactly, but it's basically this strategy where you try to make as many arguments as quickly as you can 
um, with the idea that any argument that you make that the other team doesn't have time to respond to is what they call a dropped argument, which means it's conceded. So the practical effect of this is that these high school kids are like speaking much more quickly than auctioneers and spits flying and people sometimes pass out and people are gasping for breath and it sounds like the barking of seals. And it's, it's this reduction of what is like, you know, ostensibly an exchange of ideas about like health care policy or whatever. Like you're, Jim Jordan's you're, speech, for example. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's similar to that. But, but that. but that, like, really it becomes this athletic kind of glossolalic, weird, cultic ritual. And, and I kind of participated in that. And then, kind of. Well, I did. But then, <laughs> but then you had to... Like actually to be in that world, you had to do a lot of right. research, which is funny because no one can understand anything you're saying, but right. you still have to like have a big tub of evidence. And I didn't want to do the work to produce the tub of evidence, even though nobody can hear it once you read it. But, but anyway, like, debaters do all these crazy exercises like, like you, you, you read with a, a pen in your mouth, like clenched between your teeth to train the muscles of your mouth to be able to move more quickly, or you read backwards so that you can train yourself not to be slowed down by actually understanding what you're saying. <laughs> and, um, but anyway, so like the spread, you know, in the book is like, it is like, it, it, it very much is about the kind of collapse of meaningful exchange and a metaphor not for the very slow, agrammatical, racist dog whistling of like Trump speak, right? The politicians speak very slowly, but, but for the way that say Trump has learned that having one scandal would be really dangerous and having two or 3,000 world historical scandals a day is totally incapacitating. Mm -hmm. You know, like you're already, or, or the way that, you know, drug companies or financial institutions use language. You know, there's hundreds of pages of fine print that you know you're not actually supposed to read and understand. You know you've just already signed away all your rights or whatever. So the spread is very much a metaphor for a kind of information economy that's totally incapacitating. But to make, for me, the reason why it was worth writing about was because also Adam and the other people who participate in this weird activity sometimes have these moments of transport mm -hmm. where they don't feel like they're delivering the speech, they feel like the speech is delivering them and they have mm -hmm. this experiences of just prosody and language coursing through them and it's a kind of weird moment of avant-garde poetry mm -hmm. where they're making contact with the weird mundane miracle of language as such. Like it's the end of a language, it's the total bankruptcy mm -hmm. of a policy discourse or whatever, like you don't figure mm -hmm. anything out about policy. But I also liked these like mm -hmm. nerdy kids saying, we're doing something else, like we're, mm -hmm. we're re-encountering the plasticity mm -hmm. of language, mm -hmm. we're gonna make a new kind of language game. So all the extremes of linguistic mm -hmm. breakdown in the book are also mm -hmm. moments of possibility because mm -hmm. they're moments of encountering the kind of, the, the, mm -hmm. yeah, the, the miracle of human language as such. Like you mm -hmm. can vibrate these columns of air mm -hmm. and suddenly, you mm -hmm. know, some part of consciousness becomes shareable. So I, 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 or like with freestyle, like I wanted, I, which is very embarrassing in the book, and the book's ruthlessly critical of these suburban <laughs> middle-class kids appropriating these, you know, what they've seen on their, in their hip-hop videos. But again, like an experience of flow mm -hmm is an experience of the transpersonal mm -hmm. capacity mm -hmm. of language. And that's an experience that always has like a poetic and political valence that isn't just about mm -hmm. the bankruptcy of language. It's also about mm -hmm. the fact that language can be remade. I mean, this is a 
Having been on the receiving end and the giving end, both of language to each other, like in terms of sending each other pages of things that we're working on or things, I mean, I think that, you know, I've often gotten the feeling when you're kind of saying like, well, Maggie, here are just, you know, some pages I wrote the other day, you know, but when I get them, I usually have the feeling that what you're describing that like, you know, that you that you plugged yourself into the flow and almost despite yourself, you know, literature, language, you know, that, that what you're describing is flowing through you. And I wonder though, um, you know, I think I may have been accused of a certain kind of hypoglossalia or something at a certain point, hypomanic writing in my life. But when I actually write, it never feels like that to me. And I wonder, does it feel like that to you? You mean it never feels like it's flowing through you? It no. always feels like <laughs> it feels like, like the artist Sarah Lucas once said, you know, art is like being in a prison cell with a nail file and trying to get out. Yeah. I mean, that's how it feels to me. <laughs> that's usually how it feels to me. Too. So it, feel, it might feel like that, but it doesn't come off like that. Well, sometimes, I mean, like, like, with this, like with this book, which was the hardest book for me to write because for a variety of reasons, but because it was so much of it was having to will it and figure it out and start over. But there were like a few sections that felt maybe only one really, maybe the first section that's kind of in the mother's voice that did just kind of come through me. It was mm -hmm. like I just kind of sit down and could write this for many hours mm -hmm. and I had no idea if it's any good or not. It would have to be made a lot better in revision. Mm -hmm. I do sometimes, not nearly enough to be like a healthy, happy person, but do sometimes have the experience of like, you know, like just like, the, flow, the, yeah, yeah, flow. <laughs> like, and, and, and I do, you know, like with my first book of poems, which took me you know, four or five years to write or whatever, I wrote the first 14 sonnets in one night and then mm -hmm. spent the rest of the time writing the other poems. Mm -hmm. you know? And it was very, ca like, mm -hmm. so I do have like little, they're mm -hmm. very rare, but I do have some of that mm -hmm. experience of like, you know, as mm -hmm. poets sometimes like, taking dictation mm -hmm. or whatever, mm -hmm. but then it's only a moment and then it's the, yeah, then it's the nail file. <laughs> I mean, maybe, uh... I mean, what about the Darren sections? Darren is this character that runs throughout the book, but kind of differently from the long monologues that Ben has running through, whereas the Darren character, I'm using the name in the book, yeah, right? yeah, yeah okay, um, has, uh, uh, they're third person, so they're not spoken, but they, my impression was that they also have flowed through you. Um, but this is a character, and I also want to talk a little bit more about Darren because, I think maybe in our remaining time, I have so many more things I want to talk about than this, but it might be also interesting to talk a little bit about speech and political speech. Yeah. And I think that um, uh, there's, a, there's a kind of you know, mute quality to Darren, but we're getting his internal monologue. Yeah. But his story ends, well, it doesn't end with, but it's, um, you know, that... You know, uh, we learned in the beginning of the book and his monologues that, you know, an act of violence has been set into motion and then this kind of cue ball that he throws that shatters um, a girl's jaw is kind of literally kind of flying in motion throughout the whole course of the book and then lands near the end and there's this, um, you know, sense of, I mean, a lot of people have written about violence as the kind of end of speech mm -hmm. in certain ways and it feels like that. But I've also read in a 
uh, I've also read in a couple of places, like some people not having liked you put a MAGA hat on Darren, saying that like he's the most kind of ostensibly mentally ill character in the book. And thus the implication is that, you know, there's a certain kind of mental illness at the root of Trumpism. And that didn't seem to me like my reading of the book at all. But I also thought that the book does seem to me like it's partaking in a conversation happening right now, which has to do with the fact that whether it's, you know, Reich's analysis of the mass psychology of fascism or James Baldwin's analysis of the kind of spiritual malady of racism, that there are moments, and we may be in one, when a kind of strict political theory or economic analysis is, is not adequate um, for trying to understand different forms of pathology or identification taking place. And to me, I felt like that was what the Darren uh, trajectory was, not about abjecting mental illness onto him or making him the carrier of it, per se, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the... I don't think the book is totally clear about what's going on with Darren yeah. mentally. I mean, certainly yeah. he dropped out of school. He's in therapy with Adam's dad, which is something that Adam doesn't know. So they're in not a fraternal relation, mm -hmm. but there's some kind of like symmetrical relation. I mean, Darren, Darren and Adam are as different as can be. Like Adam has all this language and he has all this privilege and he has all this support and Darren doesn't have that and Adam is one of the kind of cooler seniors who brings Darren into the like senior party circuit and this has disastrous effects. So that like bringing him into the senior party circuit is both like this act of cruelty and mockery and also a little bit about like let the kid get to be cool for, you know before we all go to college. Like it's not always clear how much of it is cruel and how, how much of it is generous would be to overstate it, but that mm -hmm. there's a little a little particle of empathy in it. I mean, yeah, the, the Darren sections, I mean, Darren is like a kind of figure of surplus, which is also the place he hangs out at the military surplus. Like mm -hmm. he can't hold down a job. He can't like inpatient care isn't available who would pay if that's what he needs. Mm -hmm. He couldn't make it in high school. He, uh, you know, the military wouldn't have him. Oh, the military would probably have him now. It used to be harder to get into the military. But, but, the, but Darren haunts each main section kind of the same way as he haunts the periphery of the novel. But he doesn't have language. And those italicized sections, which did kind of mm -hmm. flow in the writing, are on the one hand from Darren's perspective, but also their kind of hyper-literariness was mm -hmm. for me a way of saying, this is the older Adam's best guess. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, like, like the book doesn't pretend to have unmediated mm -hmm. access to his internality. Mm -hmm. What it has is the older Adam reflecting on the way Darren was treating and tr treated and trying mm -hmm. to figure out a kind of vantage. Um, and the only community in Topeka that will have Darren at the end of the book are, are most Topeka's most famous um, citizens, the Fred Phelps Westboro. and the, and the, Westboro, right, the yeah. Westboro Church. And he's kind of mutely holding his sign, mm -hmm. you know, kind of, it's kind of dead, it's like a, you know, extreme dead end of masculine terror. But all of this mm -hmm. is to say that what, what really unites Darren and Adam in the book, in addition mm -hmm. to things like when Adam gets a concussion, Darren's mom, who's a nurse, who's a nurse mm -hmm. is caring for Adam the same way, you know, so there are all these different kinds of care and failures of care, but what really unites them is that they're both totally disfigured by this desire to pass as real men. Mm -hmm. And they're both horrified that they're gonna be found out mm -hmm. as wanting in one regard or mm -hmm. another. So it's, 
Darren's difference is definitely mm -hmm. there, but it also mm -hmm. is, is kind of emphasizing this yeah. similarity. And to me, the, mm -hmm. I mean, the, I, I'm aware that the reviews of the book think that like he's the proto-Trump figure. And that's like mm -hmm. true to a certain degree that there's a certain kind of white mm -hmm. nationalism that comes from this white surplus rage that hasn't mm -hmm. found another yeah. kind of community or outlet. But, but the real proto-Trump figure for me is mm -hmm. the troll of a debate coach who's a quite right. competent, quite right. privileged right. Uh, white guy who's come home to work on um, Sam Brownback's right. campaign and who is really good at mixing a kind of folksy vocabulary with a, a, a xenophobic and misogynistic mm -hmm. agenda and who teaches Adam a kind of, again, to use that phrase, weaponized eloquence mm -hmm. that part of the project of mm -hmm. this book is to renounce. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think what you just said about the anxiety about being real men, I mean, the two scenes in the book that, you know, two, I mean, they're very funny and they're very not funny, but they're of Adam when he... I mean, kind of like you're saying about having kids and, and trying to do things differently or not be doomed to repeat um, mistakes, uh, that Adam, in, his, in the two scenes I'm thinking of, one is when he confronts, so the Westboro Phelps people are, um, they're, they're protesting and trolling Adam's mother, Jane, because she's a feminist psychologist who's written uh, famous books about, um, you know, that have made her, uh, what's the word, Jezebel or Harlot or whatever these different... The they, they call her in the book, as they called my mom in real life, a Jezebelian switch-hitting whore. Yes, exactly. That was the phrase I was looking for. So they're out there protesting her as such. But Adam, in, you know, wanting to defend his mother, you know, uh, instead makes a scene. What does, he, what does he call them? Or he says... He calls he, someone a bitch. He calls he someone a bitch, and they start saying... Him. I mean, their whole gig is to, like, provoke people. They were just at my son's school in Los Angeles recently doing the same thing. So their whole gig is to provoke you into response. So they're trying to... And then when, once Adam is provoked, they're like, oh, is this the who you raised, Miss Feminist Mom? You know, this is your great son calling us, you know, calling this person a bitch. And then... So there's that scene, and then that's kind of echoed in the, near the end of the book when Adam is the father of two young girls... The girls are being kind of bullied on the playground by a, you know, kind of a dick of a kid uh, who Adam approaches the, the kind of the bad dad figure on the playground saying, you know, hey, maybe you can let your, you know, make your kids act a little differently. And that dad's like, you know, boys will be boys, boys will be boys, you know, screw you. And Adam eventually, um, you know, after trying, you know, all this kind of reasonable speech ends up. I guess, hitting the phone out of the bad dad's hand, but is the person in both instances um, who, in acts of trying to make a better form of masculinity in protecting his daughters or in defending his mother, becomes the, the bad actor exactly. in certain ways. And so, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I don't know what question I have now that I've offered you this analysis of those things. It's, it's, <laughs> but you said really exactly. No, it's so, a yeah. really accurate. And, right. I, and I, I think it's important because there's apparently a way to read this book, although it's not available to me as the person who wrote it, which is about like Adam's triumphant development or something. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it's very, I mean, at the end of the book, he's very much still in this, in this mode of, I mean, he's, he's critical of it. He's interested in alternatives. Mm -hmm. It's not the only voice in his right. head, but he's still very much beholden to a logic where, right. where he becomes 
what he's, you know, ostensibly criticizing. But here's the thing, and this is my vote of confidence in you as a human being, <laughs> and, and in the ca character of Adam, which is that, you know, he can't, you know, you're not going for perfect. I mean, he's, right. he's, he's contaminated, and these things are echoed, just like the parents have flaws, but there's a kind of, um, you know, the, like as you just said, it's like there are enough seeds in the pot <laughs> that are also sprouting alongside these other ones that, I mean, I do think that there's a, uh, hopefulness is the wrong word, but, you know, a feeling that, a more, a more realistic kind of hopefulness, which is not to say that these elements can be extinguished within us, but that enough other things can also be there that they may not have as toxic as effects mm -hmm. as they have when, they're, uh, when they grow rank, you know? Yeah. Um, but what you said just a minute ago, what did you say? Something about, like, writing the novel and... Um, well, I can't remember if you said he failed or succeeded in his speech in Adam, but at the, the very end, so the very last bit of the book is a scene at a rally against ICE in Brooklyn where Adam takes his two young daughters with his wife and, um, and there's a confrontation with um, a policeman outside while the two daughters are drawing in chalk on the street and um, Adam says to, you know, to the policeman, the policeman's saying, you know, get these kids stopping drawing, you know, just get him, and he's saying, you know, we're kind of challenging, again, another scene that seems like it's gonna go the same as the others, kind of challenging the cop's authority and saying, but then, but then Adam says, and I don't think Adam, I think this might be a, a moment of the novel where we're not supposed to believe that he actually spoke these words to the policeman because he says, the cop says, this is the last time I'm gonna ask you. And Adam says, you see what shoes my daughter's wearing. Do you have kids? Because I have no authority is what I'm trying to say. I just have no authority over these kids. Do you have authority? Where does your authority come from again? I mean, I'm guessing, I mean, maybe you did say those words or Adam said those words, but it seems like a moment where it kind of lapses into the speech of what, of what one would say. But, but also Adam saying, I have no authority. Um, I mean, it's an interesting move in a novel, which is obviously, it's not authoritative, it's just virtuosic, and there becomes a kind of space between the virtuosic and the authoritative. I don't know if that is a meaningful distinction yeah, for you. Yeah, but I, I think, like, that the... Yeah, I mean, again, I think it's, like, more and more when I think about the book and the different kinds of schools in the book, mm -hmm. the book wants to be... It wants to be an instance of unlearning certain mm -hmm. bankrupt forms of authority, like yeah. to like in the same way we're talking about like the spread, like the good thing about the spread and debate for all its craziness is it is the eradication of a certain authority, like a, a, like, a, like a false authority that's in the bankrupt class mm -hmm. of political pundits or whatever that mm -hmm. the kids are making into this game where you recover the plasticity of language. Like, it's a book about schooling, but the goal of the book is to model a kind of unlearning. Mm -hmm. So to arrive at the point of um, recognizing the lack of authority and kind of editing out the false narratives of authority that have gone into his voice in so many ways that mm -hmm. that is that there's a kind of authority that derives from that renunciation which is just like an openness to the social possibilities of language that doesn't have to be mm -hmm. the mere repetition mm -hmm. of the masculine posturing that shows up in a lot of other 
a lot of other scenes. But here's the other thing about language in the book, and I know that we're spending a lot of time talking about, as the book does, about forms of speech, but you know, uh, as you were describing about speech being used to occasionally obfuscate kind of big, huge moving forces moving below, you know, there is, um, and maybe this is related to political speech, maybe it's because my mind is completely pickled by watching impeachment hearings for days, but like in all the speech, but you know, but, but, but beneath the speech are these huge forces of, you know, hot wars and betrayals and, you know, and, and capital moving and, you know, and I, and I was thinking about Claudia Rankin's quote on the back of your book and I just wanted to ask you what you thought when she says, the Topeka School deftly explores how language not only reflects but is at the very center of our country's most insidious, insidious crises, which I think is a true statement about what the book does. But I also wanted to ask you, you know, so language is at the center, but there's something about this idea that we can broker it out by finding the right language that seems to me also bankrupt as an idea. Yeah, yeah I mean, I guess like here, here's my best attempt at an wait. optimistic yeah. <laughs> statement about contemporary language. Like, like to me, like the truth, you know, like so this thing we have now where like Trump, is considered authentic by his supporters because he doesn't lie very effectively. <laughs> like he's the most honestly dishonest politician. And that's a real thing. You know, like there's a degree to which like the, the kind of vote for Trump I can most, I wouldn't say respect, but kind of most understand is this vote that's described as something like this. It's like, well, you've got people like you know, the Clint, like you, you've got like the Clinton dynasty or the Bush dynasty who, who are, are skilled to varying degrees, politicians at putting like a relatively humane face or some kind of ideological coherence on policies that we know don't bear any relation to their avowed values. And here's this guy who's just doesn't even observe, like observe a logical principle of non-contradiction. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll say like, like, are you prepared to renounce David Duke, you know, during the right. campaign? And it'll be like, I don't know who David Duke is, and yes, I renounce him, and no, I won't renounce him, and mm -hmm. I couldn't hear the question because mm -hmm. the earphone, you know, mm -hmm. like, there's like many different, kind of, mm -hmm. and, and the, the truth that Trump speaks when he opens his mouth is the truth of how fundamentally bankrupt our mainstream political discourse is, mm -hmm. right? And that that's a real truth in the sense that, that, that we have to heed it. Like we have to develop a new mm -hmm. political mm -hmm. vocabulary. You can't just kind of go back mm -hmm. to a nostalgia for like a good regressive father as opposed to like, mm -hmm. you know, the Trump father or whatever. So I think that the, I, I mean, I, I think that like what you see in an impeachment hearing in part is what happens when you just have two totally incompatible language mm -hmm. games being played. It's not discourse, mm -hmm. right? It's just signaling. There's no mm -hmm. possibility of exchange, et cetera. I think that the good thing that I wish, the good thing about the present of speech like is, is, is that there's no going back. Mm -hmm from the political, there, there's no going back after, I mean, the, the, the language, the kind of like neoliberalism with a humane face, the cultural conservatism, a certain brand of the Republican Party, like whatever, like that's, it's just, it's, it's gone there and died in his mouth. Mm -hmm. and, and the good thing about that 
The good thing about that is that that's a, that's a moment of linguistic collapse that reminds us mm -hmm. of our human capacity to generate mm -hmm. a new language. In the mm -hmm. book, this book has no program, mm -hmm. no ideas mm -hmm. for like where we go from here, but right. it, does, it, it, does, it does want to model an approach to language where you say, when, when the language arrives at an end point, mm -hmm. you make contact with the abstract capacity of language again, and then we have to actually listen and honor authentic speech when it arises that are alternatives to the kind of nonsense signaling that dominates like an impeachment hearing. Okay, I have questions about that, but I'm not going to ask them. <laughs> I'm going to ask you later. I'm just going to ask one more question, and then I guess we'll open it up to the audience, um, which is just a, you know, a, just more writerly questions, which is, um, so this is a really different kind of novel than your first two novels, and I know that, um, you know, maybe you'll hate me for saying this, but like, be, because of its experiments in voice and because it have a different kind of structure than those two, you know, it, it, it employs more, it employs more novelly, <laughs> more fictive uh, elements um, than the kind of Bernhardt monologues that the first two were. And I just wonder, knowing as I do, being your friend and, and being a writer, talking about genre and form with you, knowing your ambivalences about fiction in general and about the novel as a form, I just wonder, in writing this kind of novel, were there things about, you know, where do your, where do your ambivalences stand now? And what did you, did you, was there anything about fiction or about novelly elements that were, um, entrancing or surprising um, or compelling to you to in moving forward or like yeah just what do you feel yeah, about I mean, it, it now is, right it is it is intergenerational it has multiple centers it is involved in a different set of novelistic conventions I mean I think you know like there's a kind of novel and this can be done really well like I'm not knocking this kind of novel but there's a kind of novel where the goal is to be able to inhabit other minds and voices really seamlessly, right? Where you're supposed to forget that you're kind of reading the work of one author and have all these very different vantages. And, and sometimes that can be great. That, even with multiple voices and centers, that's not what I was interested in. I yeah. was more interested in the drama of the adult son undertaking the effort to imagine the voices of the parents and there being tears in those voices, glitches, Tears, yeah, like glitches mm -hmm. in the matrix of the voice that yeah. shows you this isn't just the mother. You're not supposed to like willingly suspend disbelief and believe like now you have the mother, now you have the father. Really what you're seeing is the emotionally charged drama of the son trying and sometimes failing to access those voices. Like it's not the virtuosic inhabitation of another voice. Which, Pretty close. Well, but the, but it well, does have terrors. I'll, I'll it, in one you that. moment, yeah. it kind of yeah. makes a bid for that. But, but at other moments, it's very, and also with like the repetition of phrases, like mm -hmm. it's, I, I wanted it to be felt, at, I wanted the emotional drama in part to be the unevenly successful effort to imagine that other voice as opposed mm -hmm. to the accomplished fact of the other voice being like a closed sphere because so much of the drama for the book for me is the older Adam trying to figure out the history of his voice and what he wants to honor mm -hmm. in it and what he wants to edit out as he becomes mm -hmm. someone who's going to invariably transmit a voice to the, mm -hmm. you know, one voice among many to the mm -hmm. next generation. So I just mean to say that the, mm -hmm. the conventions of multiple mm -hmm. voices, that, that was 
that was more novelistic, but it was also to a certain degree the strategic moments of disappointing the ambition of those mm -hmm. conventions that were charged with mm -hmm. more emotional drama for me. But I also, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. And, mm -hmm. I, and I, um, I do think I wanted to write this, I wanted to end this trilogy of novels. Mm -hmm. And I knew that, that, that I, did, I always thought of it as a, I mean, I didn't know, mm -hmm. I thought of it as one novel and I thought it was a diptych and then mm -hmm. I thought, okay, well, I guess there's <laughs> one more. But the, but the, what I wanted it to be the end of that thing. I wanted it to be in mm -hmm. the grammar of the other books, mm -hmm. which are very first person books, mm -hmm. as you know, or whatever. But I wanted within that framework to like have it be of, like to be one entry in that syntactic unit, but to produce the most formal difference mm -hmm. I could yeah. within it, in part just because um, otherwise I felt like I would be repeating myself mm -hmm. formally. So yeah. I, I just think convention, like, you know, the, like novelistic conventions are great because they're things that they, they create patterns of expectation you can strategically disappoint. Mm -hmm. They're not great just because you fulfill them in the most expected mm -hmm. way, but you're right, it is more novelly in that regard, but it's also very much about kind of um, bending those conventions in certain mm -hmm. strategic ways that, that, that show you that it's still this neurotic Adam Gordon character right. trying to figure this stuff out. So that the, yeah. the, the, all the, like one first person is a composite of all the different first persons. Okay, so this is my real last question, which is just, but it's kind of coming off that, which is that when I get done with a writing project of certain experiments with different conventions or a form, I'm usually so tired and irritated and disgusted sometimes with just out of exhaustion with the immersion in it that I feel kind of catapulted towards a very different kind of project next. Did you feel like that after finishing this book? And if so, what direction did you feel catapulted in? I or? feel catapulted, but without any direction. Great, okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I definitely, I definitely feel done with whatever these three books were right. and like I have absolutely no idea what if anything I will ever write again. Great. That, that, <laughs> ben and I talk a lot about writing into the nothingness at the end of writing in the future so we'll just keep yeah. talking about that <laughs> together. All right you guys um, let's have you guys ask some questions of Ben and we'll bring up the lights a little bit and see see who's in the house. Actually we still can't see you at all. No we've just been alone with our lives. So. <laughs> This question's coming from the front and center Great. of the orchestra. Uh, thank you. First, uh, both Maggie and Ben, I have to say, I come to a lot of these lectures, and I'm sorry I haven't read this book, but <laughs> you did a great job making this really interesting. I really, okay. really enjoyed the interaction. Um, so uh, first, I, this is a two-part question, because if the answer to the first question is no, then my second part is meaningless. So <laughs> is the character Adam a like only child? In your, in your book? Yes. So I found it really interesting at the sort of start of this that you, you mentioned that your brother was like, mm -hmm. I don't want to be involved in this. And then you started talking about like empathy that you were sort of struggling with to sort of put yourself into the head of this like teenager and to, to sort of experience those emotions. So I actually sort of wonder if like, did you struggle with the idea that you're writing from the perspective of an only child when you you had a brother when you were growing up, and like, was there some sort of struggle that you had there? Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I, so I, what I did, my solution that may or may not have been a solution was to take my brother out of the book, but then to dedicate it to him. Um, because it is a book thinking through, I mean, it's, again, it's heavily fictionalized, but it does involve a lot of like shared experience and context. 
I, um, it's, yeah, you know, it, it is, a, it, I, I couldn't, like every, like formally when I tried to write it with the brother, even before getting into the issue of like what my brother would allow me to write or object to, like I've, it kind of doubled every scene, like every scene or the conversation with the mom, I then thought, well now I have to write the scene which is about like the mom telling the brother or the son processing it with the brother and I, like I couldn't, I couldn't figure out how to, how to do it. Um, a lot of people have talked to me about it as like an intense book about being an only child. Um, <laughs> which I listen and I'm interested in, but, I, but I, I, have no, I, have no, I have no experience of. It is, I think, a book about, um, I, I mean, I do think the parents' concerns about Adam um, and the way that Adam is in certain ways very available to them and in certain ways a black box does have to do with him kind of have, like there's being certain kinds of like privacy in the household like there isn't like the there isn't there isn't another person in Adam's generation that's generating talk that the parents are observing so I do think it is a, it's a different household environment and then it becomes about Adam's relationship with with his close friend that gets crossed in various family dynamics but but to me the 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 form of acknowledgement of the problem was to dedicate it to Matt my brother, which was also a way of acknowledging the fictionality of what nevertheless would use a lot of biographical material. But I had to, that, like I, I usually don't know how I'm gonna dedicate a book until I've written a book, if I'm gonna dedicate it, but the condition of writing this book was to dedicate it to Matt, but to keep him out of the fiction. Like it, it was essential to making it writable. And here's when we recall the great Kafka line that the book is the truth and the dedication is the lie. <laughs> yes. All right. This question's coming from the center, slightly towards your right. Hello. I haven't read any of your work, so I'm sorry if this is completely out of context. Um, I'm curious about this idea um, that you have of kind of melding your personal history and narrative with the kind of like fictionalized self. I think. Um, if you could talk about that in terms of how you think it fits into our age, um, which is one where I think everybody now has the platform on Twitter and, and Facebook and et cetera, et cetera, to kind of do the same or something similar, um, to take like all of the uh, experiences that they have and, and try and tell this very, very interesting story to some number of people and hope that, you know, maybe, maybe a lot of people care. But uh, you seem to have, have done that and it does seem something that is very uh, core to like our age. Um, and I wonder like how you think about that and how you think like whether that is something that is ascendant, whether more and more of novels will be um, at least admittedly in this way. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I don't think, I, I do think that we, since we live in a moment in which a lot of life is lived or whatever the word is, pursued with like, you know, digital avatars or whatever, that some of the concern that's often described as like autofiction amongst writers, like writers using autobiographical material probably is like an opportunity to be slower and more critical about the self-curation and social performance that's part of our identities. Like, I mean, I think there is something that's probably timely about it. I also think it's like as old as the novel the kind of mixing of fact and fiction and the dramatization of the blurry boundary between art and life. I mean, and I don't have a kind of abstract commitment to like writing books that involve 
clearly autobiographical material. I think the themes that I was interested in in the novels kind of lent themselves to working with that material. Um, but I also think kind of all, I mean, maybe this is obvious, I don't know, but I, I, feel, I feel like all writing involves the biography of the person who's doing the writing. The question is, when is the work of art intensified or made more interesting by foregrounding or acknowledging the relation between the artwork and, and some of the forces that were, that were compelling the artist who was making it. But I mean, I guess the other thing I'd say is that there's this thing that happens a lot now of like grouping all the writers who use some kind of autobiographical material in their fiction, and it's a very different group of writers. I mean, like, there's somebody like Kanausgaard, who I'm very interested in, whose like thing is to kind of reject literariness, and I'm going to write down every experience I've ever had, and I'm going to embrace formlessness, and I'm going to tell every detail about my marriage, and like all that kind of stuff, and it can be a kind of riveting and disturbing project, but that, like I have nothing in, like I'm a big believer in literariness and, and structuring an artwork as carefully as possible and always bending the quote unquote facts to the truth that the literary form might achieve. So this is not a very good answer, it's just to say that like I, I, think, I think this is like, there, there are reasons why this has come into focus now because there are so many avatars in, in the social world. It's also like one of the oldest concerns of literary production and then there's just a great diversity of interests and forms and artworks and experiments within this thing that like a lot of people call autofiction or fiction that blurs biography. So I think it has to be kind of like work by work. This question's from the front all the way to your right. Hey, Ben, over here. Is that my cousin? I don't think so, but... Oh. <laughs> I thought my cousin Jen was here, and you, you, sounded, you sounded kind of like my cousin Jen. Oh, my cousin's over there. Okay, yeah, thanks. Um, Hi, Jen. So I hope this question doesn't sound facile. I've, I've actually thought about it for a long time. Why isn't the name of the narrator of 1004, Adam. <laughs> yeah, so I had a lot of trouble. It's, it's not a facile <laughs> question. So first I, first I was gonna have the narrator, the first novel, not be Adam Gordon, but be Ben. And then my mom talked me out of it. <laughs> but, I, but I don't remember, like I, I was like, but I think it was a problem. I think it was like a failure of nerve. But then I was stuck with this Adam Gordon name in the first novel. Like it was like, I just like, I was kind of convinced that there needed to be like an added level of acknowledgement of its fictionality or something. But then in the second novel, I mean the name Ben only appears in a very strange context in the novel, which is in this letter, this fictionalized letter that's actually kind of cut. Like it's, on, it's kind of haunting the outside of the novel. So most people say like the narrator of 1004 is named Ben, but I don't kind of always think of it that way. I sometimes think of that narrator as unnamed. But the movement between the first book and the second is kind of funny because it's like the author of the first book becomes the narrator of the second book. When I was in the third book, I just thought like, it's, it's enough of Adam, like it's, it's continuous enough, enough of it is about the kind of relationship between fact and fiction and, and that I would return to kind of that name to make clear that it wanted to be the prehistory of the first book to a certain degree. But, but names, I mean, I'm reading this 
absolutely incredible um, book of, or the, the three Elias Canetti memoirs. Um, the great author of Crowds and Power, and so much of it is about names, and he feels like he's ruined his novel because he gave the narrator the wrong name, and he can't read certain novels because he doesn't like the name. And I actually, like, I've, I've, had, I've had profound trouble with proper names in novels. Like, I write, I write it with, like, a name that might be something, like Darren, you know, like when you were asking, is Darren his name? Like, before his name was Dale. Mm -hmm. There was kind of a real Dale, but Dale was, like, the perfect name because it was both, like, a very Topeka name, but it was also kind of like John Clare and the Unenclosed Valley, and it had this like pastoral echo. So I wrote the whole book with Dale. It was the only word in the book that I was really sure about was Dale. <laughs> and then I had to change it. I mean, I didn't have to change it, but there kind of was a Dale, even though it was like very different, but I was worried that, you know, Topeka's a small place. Like, I was just like worried it would upset someone. So then I spent all this time trying to figure out Something kind of like I like that would work in the sentences. It needed a D. It needed like a stressed initial syllable. Then it becomes like a prosody problem. But as soon as you change a name in fiction, every name sounds fake. Like I have someone named like you know Liza in a fiction, but I have a cousin named Liza. So then I change it to like Alex, and I'm like, no one's named Alex. That sounds ridiculous. You know, like. <laughs> so I don't know. I have an ongoing crisis with 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 proper names, and it shows up, I think, in the kind of slipperiness of the narrator's name or the resistance to the name. You know, I think the word, I think it only, uh, the narrator's name I think only appears once in, in 1004 and kind of disappears. So it's not a facile question, I just don't really have the answer to it. But it is, it is, a, it is yeah, it is something that changes in the work. But here's the good news, which is that I think probably all of Ben's books are for sale, and we're going to vacate That's an expert transition this stage. Goodness. That's my specialty. We're yeah. going to vacate the stage after we thank you guys so much, and then if you want to um, have books signed in the lobby, um, that will happen next. So thank you, Ben, and thank, thank you guys you all for coming. Thank you. Yeah. You've been listening to Ben Lerner in conversation with Maggie Nelson. This program was recorded at the Sydney Goldstein Theater in San Francisco on November 21st, 2019. These broadcasts are produced by City Arts and Lectures in association with KQED Public Radio, San Francisco. Executive producers are Kate Goldstein Breyer and Holly Mulder Wallen. Director of Communications and Design is Alexandra Washkin. Production and Communications Assistant is Juliet Gelfman Rondazzo. The post-production director is Nina Thorson. The Sydney Goldstein Theatre technical director, Steve Eckerd. House manager, Lucy Faulkner. The recording engineer is Jane Heaven. Theme music composed and performed by Pat Gleason. The founding producer is Sydney Goldstein. To attend a live program, see who is coming next, or find out more about our podcast, visit our website at cityarts.net. That's cityarts.net.